Welcome to this week's podcast from Suncoast Church. We hope that this message inspires you and helps you grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more details, check out suncoast.org.au. We hope you enjoy this message. So um, we have been having this conversation in the last a couple of weeks, three weeks, you know, three weeks it's been today since Easter. Can you believe it? It's only three weeks ago. I feel like it's three months ago. So much seems to have happened in the last three months. Um, but it, three in the last three weeks, we've been having this conversation, what happened next? And we've been asking the question, what can we learn from the first followers of Jesus? Because they were there and they didn't have what we have. They didn't have Broadway items on a Sunday night. They didn't have church buildings like we have. They didn't have electricity. You know, like there's a lot of things they didn't have. They didn't have, you know, choirs and church bands. You know, like there's a lot of things. And yet, no matter, regardless of where they're at, they, somehow the message of Jesus um, managed to, to go out and, and spread like wildfire. And to be, all, to be honest with you, it was against all odds. Because there was so much persecution um, in, at the time. There was so much oppression at the time. And everybody took sides. So it was amazing. Persecution was so great. And yet the Christian faith went out. And yet there were so many people against, against it. For a start, the Jewish aristocracy, the, the Jewish ruling class were against it. They had, by this time, they had developed a, bit, a little bit of a, um, an economy around the temple. And it was maybe their way of keeping power, maybe their way of maintaining some kind of um, control in a time where they were occupied by Rome. Israel at the time was occupied by the Roman Empire. And, and they, you had to pay a temple tax to go to temple. And you had to, they had this little sort of buy and sell kind of thing going on with sacrifices, you know, for offerings that people would bring. And so for the Jewish, for the the Jewish aristocracy, for the Jewish leaders, you know, to have these Jesus followers, these people that they called the followers of the way, saying, oh, you can just have direct access through to God. You can just pray and have direct, and just use the name of Jesus. Just pray in Jesus' name. They're like, well, hang on a minute. You're going to totally undermine our whole system, and, and that's not good Judaism. And, you know, like, it, it, they, it, they were against it, to the point where the Jewish leaders actually sent out people to persecute and to make life really difficult for followers of the way, for followers of Jesus, um, to the point where they would murder them. They would actually, you know, dispatch, you know, stone, whatever they would do. Um, that's with rocks. And then they, then there's also the Roman occupation. You know, there's also the Roman soldiers that were the ruling class and they didn't want like a little, you know, thing going on over here where, you know, all of a sudden people are worshipping Jesus or, you know, following Jesus. No, because they're saying that Jesus is the son of God. And who was, who was God to them? Caesar. And so that was like totally at odds. And so, you know, Jesus was crucified on a Roman cross, you know, so the, everything's going on. There was, everyone had a different side. At the time, the common business language was Greek. And so there was, you know, there was that, that whole, there was Greek, Greek polytheism going on as well. It was just like, it was a melting pot of culture and religion and politics and social issues. It was like 2,000 years ago. So we're talking not long life expectancy, poverty. You know, you're either really rich or you're really poor. And maybe some people were in the middle, but you know, there was a poverty was like people lying on the streets, you know, lame and, and unable to to make ends meet, you know, it, it wasn't just like, oh, you know, I, I ran out of money this week, I couldn't, you know, do you know what I mean, like people were lying on the, lying there for 20 years, you know, um, and just calling out for people to help them and to, and to, to 
don't hate beggars on the street. You know, like it, it was such a melting pot of, of, of issues and of, of just tension, tension, ethnic tension, racial tension, gender, you know, between men and women, um, tension in terms of politics, just like you know, so much going on. And yet the Christian faith somehow survived against all odds. And many people can't explain why. And lots of people have sort of taken it on as, you know, research project. Why has did the Christian faith survive, you know, when it was so persecuted and it was so oppressed and it was so ridiculed? You know, even the word Christian was not a word that was like a label of honor. No, it was like, oh, you're a Christian. Like, what's the, you know, like you're a bogan, like they may as well say, you know, like it was, it was, it was you know, it was, it was an insult, unless that's not an insult to you. Maybe you... <laughs> proud anyway uh, so but you know, like that's what it was like you know it, it they were they were persecuted and and yet it survived and one guy Rodney Stark who's a sociologist um and study study who studied this he's a sociologist of religion and a historian and he he says it this way he says Christianity actually revitalized Greco-Roman cities where there was lots going on. There was, there was lots going on in terms of slavery, in terms of exploitation. And, and he says that Christianity re- revitalized it by providing new norms and new kinds of social relationships able to cope with the many urgent urban problems of the day. And then he explains it. He says, for example, to cities filled, oh, sorry, to cities filled with the homeless and the impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. We didn't just like walk by beggars on the streets, you know. Christians would move towards these people and help them and and pray for them and help them with their physical needs. Um, Also, to cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachments. To cities filled with orphans and widows, he said, it is on the next slide, I'm not sure what's going on there. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family, sort of like a new common bond, a new, a new way. And as a matter of fact, one of the key scriptures from the New Testament, it says this, what is pure and undefiled religion? It's looking after orphans and widow- widows. And this was a hallmark of the Christian faith, that Christians would not just turn a blind eye to social needs, they would reach out to the most vulnerable in societies. And then Rodney Stark says, to cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered, how's this, a new basis for social solidarity, a new common bond, a new thing that they had, you know, between each other. And to cities faced with epidemics, to fires and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. And we know that all around the world um, that medical aid has gone out, often funded of the charity out of the goodness of people who are, are Jesus followers, who have been like, you know what, God has loved us so much that we need to extend the same amount as, as, as if that is even possible, but extend the same kind of love to, to people, even to, to, even to strangers. And so this was a hallmark of the Christian faith. And many people believe that that is one of the reasons why it survived it, against all odds. You know, um, these, these kind of 
people that researchers that study this actually think that probably Christians had a better immune system because they weren't so freaked out. They weren't, weren't scared of death. So they would walk towards leprosy. They would walk towards the plague. They would be there. You know, they weren't scared of what was on the other side of death. And so they would, they would, they would give freely. And so highly likely they survived um, when other people didn't. So, I mean, there's just so many theories over why did the church survive? But what we do know from the first writings of, of the early Christians, of the early followers of Jesus, is that their faith was, was known because of their love for one another and the way that they treated their fellow man. But you know what? It wasn't always this way. It actually took them a good decade or more to work this out. It did not come naturally to the first followers of Jesus. The first disciples of Jesus, followers is, you know, is, is what disciples mean, were actually Jewish men and women, Jewish probably boys and girls, to be honest. We, we think that the first disciples of Jesus were probably teenage boys, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, you know, all those disciples. And um, many, some of them were. And and so they were, they were brought up thinking that they were, and I'm going to just say it this way, better than everybody else. They actually were brought up thinking because there were certain things they had to do, including having a piece of surgery when they were about eight days old if they were a male child, ask your mum, um, and just, and they had to do to be clean, okay, to be considered pure. And they went through a lot cleansing ceremonies so that they could go to temple and so that they could, you know, bring their offering. And they went through, you know, lots, there was things that they would not eat certain kinds of food at certain times of the year. And, you know, there was all this sort of discipline. And in of itself, the discipline is kind of cool. But what came with it was this kind of pious thinking of we're better than everybody else. You know, Jews are better, are better than Gentiles, than non-Jews. And so when they saw Jesus, who was their, who they realized was the Messiah, the Son of God, you know, he predicted his death and resurrection and then pulled it off. And it was a game changer for them. When they saw the way that he walked towards, you know, a woman who was being about to be stoned for, for, because she was caught in the act of adultery. When, they, when they, he walked towards and spoke with Samaritans, when he hung out with tax collectors, you know, they were like, why? You're making yourself unclean. And it bothered them until they realized he truly was the son of God. And, and so they, they, they struggled for years. And we have accounts of this in, in the writings of the New Testament, how they struggled between their Judaism and thinking that they were sort of kind of pure. And then a Christian faith, which was to reach out to everybody, which put them in jeopardy of being able to go to temple because they weren't pure anymore. And we find a story. There's a really cool story um, in Acts chapter 10. And it's a story of Peter and Cornelius. And Peter was a disciple of Jesus. He was one of those boys who grew up, you know, spent three years walking around with Jesus, saw the miracles, was there, had a crisis of confidence right before Jesus died. The night of his trial, Peter denied him and then saw Jesus again when he had been resurrected and, and, and was restored to him. And it was a game changer for Peter because he realized that he, he thought he was the son of God, but he knew that he knew that he knew now Jesus really was the son of God. And he has an interaction um, that's recorded in the book of Acts um, with a Roman centurion called Cornelius. And Cornelius has a staff of 100 people. And this interaction is, is really interesting. The, it's written in the book of Acts. Acts is a researched um, account written by a doctor called Luke, the same guy who wrote 
the Gospel of Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, the first four books of the New Testament. And it, the book of Acts and the book of Luke, they were commissioned works. Um, Luke was writing for a man called Theophilus and Theophilus had commissioned him to put a researched account together. So Luke kind of went around and, you know, did the research and found out what had happened both during the life of Jesus and in the days of the early church. And he, he records this interaction between Peter and Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. And one day Cornelius is praying because he's actually a God-fearing Roman centurion. There is a slight possibility that maybe he was at the cross and maybe he saw Jesus die. Because at the, the recordings of, of the death of Jesus, there was a Roman centurion there who beat his chest and said, surely this was the son of God. You know, people saw Jesus. They saw how he died. And people saw him after he, he had come back from the dead, after he was resurrected. And a lot of people were talking about this. And there was a lot of, a lot of people were turning towards this Jesus and Cornelius whether he was at the whether he ever knew Jesus in person or saw him in person or not he was a God-fearing man and he was a God-fearing man to the point where it wasn't just about him and God he was very charitable in his community he's a benevolent leader he had a staff of a hundred so he could sort of say you know bring me my slippers and pipe you know servants click you know a bit like some of you mums this morning breakfast in bed yeah God bless you if that happened for you, because it didn't happen in my house. Anyway, um, so you're like, it's all right. I was here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, so he he was he was that powerful, and um, and and one day he's praying, right? And he has this vision when he's praying. Now, if your mum's dragged you along to church tonight, or you know maybe your kid dragged you, you know if you're visiting here tonight, there's probably a, an assumption amongst us because um, we're in church that um, that we believe that there is more to this life than we can see. You know that there's a spirit realm and that there's there's life after death and all those things. But if you are a skeptic, you're probably like, oh yeah, he saw an angel. So I'm just going to say to you, if you could just bear with the story because the outcome of the story, there's some really cool things to learn of, regardless of whether you think there was an angel there or not. But the way that Luke records it, he has this conversation with an angel uh, in a vision. The angel says to him, Cornelius, you need to send your men. Uh, you need to send your servants because he realized he had resources at his fingertips. Send your men um, to the, a neighboring town called Joppa, which is the current day city in Israel called Jaffa. Just send your men over to Joppa. There's a man there called Peter. Ask him to come and explain everything to you about faith and about relationship with God. And so he does, you know, clicks his fingers, servant, servant, soldier, come here, guard them on the road. You know, you know per- travel was perilous in those days. And so he did, he sent them off. The very next day, so it's, it's a bit of a journey, the very next day, Peter is in Joppa or Jaffa, however you'd like to pronounce it. And he's, he's not praying. He's just hungry. So it's lunchtime. It's around about midday. And he kind of, Luke records it this way. He says he kind of goes into a trance because he's so hungry. And he, he kind of, um, I don't know if you've ever been that desperate for food. Yes, yes, yes. So <laughs> and there was no Uber Eats, you know. And there was no like, you know, I always think, anyway. It uh, doesn't matter what I think. No, there was no drive-through. There was no, there was no McDonald's, you know. Uh, there was, he just had to wait. And they actually say in the first, in this account, in Luke 10, uh, uh, sorry, in Acts 10, Luke wrote um, that the food was being prepared for him. But I don't know what they were doing, you know, pounding the wheat or something. I, I don't know. I don't know. But there was no electricity. It was going to take a little while. Has anyone ever cooked a whole meal over a fire? A whole meal. A full thing. 
Oh, I'm, hats off to you. Respect right there. Yeah. So <laughs> you nearly got a clap. <laughs> so you did get a clap. So, um, so this, is, this is what he's doing. And he's so hungry. He kind of has this trance. And in this vision, he sees, um, actually, let's read it. In verse 11, he saw heaven open and something like a large sheet was being let down to earth by its four corners. Kind of looked like a large sheet. I don't know. It's like kind of like. Anyway, it contained all kinds of four-footed animals which is a problem because he was a Jewish boy and he was a good Jewish boy and not all four-footed animals were clean. So, for example, Jews and, you know, this still today, um, people of Jewish descent, Arabic descent, they will eat lamb, for example, but they won't eat pig. You, you know that. Like, that's, that's, that's cultural. But all kinds of four-footed animals were coming down out of heaven uh, in his vision, in his hallucination, that he, you know, trance, whatever you want to call it, um, as well as reptiles and birds. I'm not into eating reptiles and I don't even have religious beliefs about it. But, you know, he wasn't kind of, he wasn't kind of, you know, very excited about this. A voice said to him, Peter, get up, kill, eat. And his response is, surely not, Lord. My goodness, I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. And the voice spoke to him a second time and said these words, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And it rattled Peter. It rattled Peter because he's seeing the way that Jesus lived and he's and he knows the way he's been brought up and there's some things that don't, don't add up. He can't reconcile it. And he's saying, don't call anything impure that God has made clean. And this is a key difference between the Jewish faith and the Christian faith, where the Jewish faith was all about what I needed to do to be clean, whereas the Christian faith was about who had made me clean and how we have direct access to God. And this vision happened, this kind of series of events in his, you know, whatever trance is the word in, this, in the interpretation, in the translation, three times. And so it really made an impact on Peter. Next minute, there's a knock at the door. And it's the guys that had come from Cornelius's house. And they're like, hey, we, are you Peter? Is the Peter here? And he's like, yeah, that's me. We'd like to invite you to Cornelius. He's our master. You might have heard of him. He's a centurion. If you'd like to come and, you know, he'd like to invite you to his house. And Peter goes, okay, I will. Which was countercultural. It was quite a long journey. So they spent the night. This is what you need to know, the details of the story. They spent the night at Peter's place. It wasn't actually Peter's place. It was the place he was staying. And then the next day, they travelled back to Caesarea. They arrive. They arrive at Cornelius's house and Cornelius sees Peter come. Now, Cornelius is so excited because this Peter dude, he hung out with Jesus. He was there at the death and he saw him after his resurrection. And he's about, I just need somebody to make sense of this for me. And he's so he's getting excited about Peter coming. And Peter comes and this is what Cornelius does. He bows down to Peter. And Peter says, no, 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 get up, get up, get up. Can you see how significant that is? He is a Roman centurion, way more lofty in terms of social status in the Roman Empire than Peter, who was a subject of Rome. That's the thing that Jesus does. And that's the thing that the, the gospel does, that it levels the playing field. Because we're all in this together. And Peter says, hey, you don't need to bow down to me. Get up, get up. I'm not God. And he goes in to Cornelius's house. And Cornelius, because he was so excited, had invited all his friends and all his family. And, and Peter walks in and he realizes, oh my goodness. I'm the only Jew in a household full of Gentiles. I'm going to be so unclean right now. Like, 
this this is the way they thought. Like that's honestly the way. And so he's he's like acutely aware. And maybe that's like maybe you've been, have you ever been the minority? You know, the one whatever in a room of you know everybody else, whatever it might be. Some of you probably live like that all the time. I don't know, but you know, for Peter, it was it was culturally confronting. And maybe the first time that this has ever happened. So he says this to them. Now Peter's not known for his tact. He's like known for just saying things as they are. And this is what comes out of his mouth. Verse 28 of Acts chapter 10, he says, You're well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate or to visit a Gentile. Lucky I'm here. You know, like, um, but God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. What's that? That's like a backhanded compliment, isn't it? You're dirty, but it's okay, I'm here anyway. You know, like, guess honestly what he's saying. He's just like, culturally, you know, this is a big no-no. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection, if you're pleased to know. Um, So may I ask, why did you send for me? (laughs) Like, honestly, if the gospel message of how much Jesus loved the world and God loved the world was entrusted to people like that, it is a miracle that the gospel got out because that's insulting. That's so insulting. Uh, but, it, but this is the dynamic and probably what he was doing, to be really honest with you, you know, jokes aside, is he's probably just speaking to the elephant in the room. He's like, look, I know I'm not meant to be here, but why are you here? And Cornelius says to him, man, well, you'd never, probably never believe this, but a couple of days ago when I was praying, I had a vision of an angel and Peter goes, you know what? I probably would believe it because I had a vision and it was animals coming out of heaven. And there's these two dudes together going, me too, me too. I had a vision too. And what they realized is that God had set them up, that God had put them together because somebody needed to know about God and Jesus and how much he loved them. And Peter was the guy that had to tell the story. And Peter says this, he says, I realize, verse 34, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears or reveres him and does what is right. And Peter goes on to tell a story of how Jesus, how he knew Jesus. And, and he gave a first-hand eyewitness account of Jesus's life. And then he talked about how, you know, he died and he was devastated and they were all devastated. Nobody expected the tomb to be empty on the third day, but it was. And then he saw him again. And when he realized that Jesus was truly the son of God and that he was able and powerful to the point where he could overcome death, where death had no hold on him, then he realized that this changed everything. And if that same power lived in him now, then there's nothing that could stop them and nothing they needed to be fearful of. And Peter testified to what he had actually seen. And he gave witness to what he had actually seen. They didn't have a Bible. They just had what they'd seen. And that's such an important thing, especially after in light of what Jonathan said last week. And, and as they're there, um, the, the account says that everyone who listened, everyone who heard Peter's story, everyone who heard how Peter you know, explained the life of Jesus to them, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. That meant that God came into their lives. That they, they, were in, they were empowered. They, that God, they had a relationship with God and they felt like God was with them now. And, and it, was, it changed everybody. It's just such an amazing thing. And that's kind of part of the backstory of how the church ended up bridging cultural divide. And this, the, probably one of the most pivotal decisions that they had to make um, was recorded in Acts 4, 15. And Acts 15 is around about, it was called the Jerusalem Council. And Jonathan talked about this a little bit last week. It was it was significant because all the heavyweights got into a room in Jerusalem and they're talking about what do we do with Cornelius's? You know, what do we do with Romans who are Christians? 
because they're not Jewish. And they never had that bit of surgery when they were eight days old if they were boys. That's honestly what they were talking about. Should we circumcise these full-grown men? I know. Can you believe Can you believe that's even in the Bible? It's Mother's Day and I just said circumcision. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But do, like, do you, it just this is what they're like. How do we reconcile our culture with, you know, with this whole, what do we do with all the Greeks? They're surely, they're, they're really dirty, you know. But what do we do with, what do we do with the Macedonians? What do we do with the Syrians, with the Samaritans? What do we, what do we do? And it's, and it was such a, and you're so glad they had this conversation because we never talk about circumcision ever again. Anyway, so we're really glad, but they had to make some decisions. And Peter, who was, had that interaction with Cornelius, he says this, Acts 15, verse 9, he's talking about God and he says, God did not discriminate between us and them. He doesn't. God does not make a distinction between, is one interpretation, us and them. He purified their hearts by faith, not through ceremony or tradition or ritual. He's purifying people's hearts, men and women, Greeks, Jews, Romans, you know, and everybody by faith. And then James, who is the half-brother of Jesus, who was not a believer. He didn't, he was not a follower of Jesus during when Jesus was alive. When he came back from the dead, he had to like reconsider his skepticism you know so if you're like a skeptic here tonight you, you're in good company because a lot of these guys were originally skeptics and and James says look it's my judgment therefore that we should not make it difficult for people he specifically says for Gentiles who are turning to God let's not make it difficult and this was a hallmark of the Christian faith it was a significant a significant turning point and what we can learn from these these stories and this backstory of how you know how did the church become so charitable how did the church become so mobilized is that Jesus didn't take social sites he didn't take sites he, he doesn't he doesn't take you know are you for this or for that are you you know what's you know that you know the culture we feel it all the time um are you are you what whose side are you on you know, if if somebody had said to Jesus well whose side are you on are you are you for the Jews or are you for the Romans he constantly demonstrated that he was for everybody. He didn't take sides socially. He didn't take sides politically. He didn't, everyone expected that he would overthrow the empire. And he never, he didn't in that way. Years later, even though Rome persecuted Christians so much, years later, it became the state religion. Christianity became the state religion. So in that way, really, the love of Jesus did overthrow the empire eventually. But you know what? There's so much, we feel this pressure all the time, don't we? Culture pushes us. Culture pushes us. Are you for or against? You know, let's pick some topical things at the moment. Are you for Adani or against Adani? Are you for Donald Trump or against Donald Trump? What about climate change? Are you for that or are you opposed to that? Like, you know, what about so many things? So many things. There's so many debates. And it's like you have to choose a side. Are you for it or against it? Are you, is, is it good or bad? Is it right or wrong? And the debate rages. And the ironic thing is, is that culture tells us that there is no truth. Western culture, secularism tells there's no truth. Postmodernism, there's no truth. But we want you to take a side. What, what is that? You know, and we get so pushed, so pushed to take sides but that we have to back up and go, hang on a minute. What would Jesus do? Jesus never took sides. He never took social sides. And the, this is the reason why. Because sides lead to distinction mean that somebody is better than others see Jesus didn't take social sides because if he made any distinction at all he made a distinction in this way what's going to bring you life what's going to bring you life what's going to lead to death let's avoid that what's going to bring you life 
What's going to bring an answer for you? What's going to bring peace for you? What's going to bring joy that you can't explain? That's what Jesus leant towards. If he was going to make a distinction, it was between life and death. It wasn't necessarily between who's right and who's wrong. And the reason is, is because sides are an organized prejudice. They're just an organization of prejudice. They're just like, somebody's better. It leads to competition. It leads to comparison. And, and it's, it's hard to adjudicate. It's a bit like parenting. Really hard. Whose side am I on? In, in my house, it's hers or hers. I want both of you. And I, I create this tension. I, I do because I say, look, instead of fighting it out with your sister, why don't you come to me and we'll have a conversation about it and we'll try and work it out. So then I end up in situations that I can't work out all the time. And every parent of a teenager is going, yeah, yeah, I feel your pain. Because, like, honestly, they're both right and they're both wrong. So we'll just, we'll just punish the lot of yous, you know, <laughs> Do you, like, do you, know, do you know what I mean? Like, and I, and I, but I've, I've created this tension. I've, I've, I've asked for this. Don't fight. Come and let's work it out. Yeah, I don't know. It's too hard for me too. You know, like honestly, honestly, it is. Sometimes things are just that complicated, aren't they? And they're just not that clean cut. Now, sometimes somebody is more right than the other. So I'm just, you know, just letting every parent off the hook there. Um, don't go home and say, come on, you can't take sides <laughs> to your mum or your dad. But you, do you know what I mean? Like, it, it, it just is complicated. Life is sometimes really complicated. And so culture pushes us to ask whose side are you on? But you know what? Jesus did never defend the Jewish temple system. He never defended the religious system. Nor did he defend the Roman Empire. No. He offered another way. And many scholars would say it was a higher way. It was a higher way. He offered a better way. And this is what he did. He, 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 instead of judgment, he said, hey, why don't we love one another, even your enemy? You know, this whole idea of not taking sides reminds me of a story um, in Joshua. Uh, in the Old Testament, maybe if you grew up reading Bible stories, you might remember Joshua in the Battle of Jericho. And this particular night, Joshua is outside Jericho and he sees a man, Joshua chapter 5. He was near Jericho. He looked up and he saw a man in front of him with a sword drawn. And he says to him, are you for us or are you for our enemies? And the guy says to him, neither. What's that? Neither. But, and then he identifies who he is. But as a commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. It was an angel. Some scholars believe it might have been Jesus. He said, I have now come. And Joshua realizes, you know, who he's talking to. And he bows down and he says, what message does the Lord have for his servant? And then the commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals. The place where you are standing is holy. And so Joshua did so. And here's the thing. God wants to make the ground where you stand holy, wherever you are, holy. God wants to make the space that you occupy a place where he can be with you, a holy place. Rather than taking sides and being pushed to A or B, are you going to be A or are you B? Are you one or you two? Are you this or you that? What about option C? What about a higher way? What about a different way? What about moving towards the mess instead of being judgmental and writing people off and segregating and factioning society? What, what, about, what if we stopped doing that and playing those games? And what if we took a higher road and we went, you know what, Jesus, I need you to make every space that I occupy holy. I need to bring you into the situation everywhere I go, in my workplace in those relationships, in, in, in my school. God, I need you to come into my home, into my family. God, I need you to make this holy. It doesn't look ideal to me, but God, I need you to be here with me. This is not my ideal picture. God, I need you to be here with me. So instead of retreating into religion or retreating inside churches, we actually walk towards the mess open-handed like Jesus did. And we give dignity to people and we give hope to people and we pray for their peace. 
What if we, what if we actually went a different way? Jesus did not take sides. He t- showed a different way. That's not, it was not a way that lowered the standard, not at all. Quite the opposite. It actually raised the standard. It actually raised the standard of love. Love without prejudice and love that's unconditional. And love that sees God come in to every situation, to your online virtual life as well as your real life, where God can come in to every situation. He would... Jesus waded into the mess of humanity, into its segregated, bigoted, judgmental, hypocritical, broken mess. And he demonstrated reckless and extravagant love. And he raised the standard. And this was what motivated and mobilized the early church, this ethic. This ethic of unconditional love is what changed the game. And it's what put Christians on the forefront of science, you know, Many, many, many years later, when the Renaissance happened, when the you know the on the, with the when science kind of blossomed in the world, it was Christian men and women who were on the front of that, that were believing that God could bring answers to to problems like disease, you know, bacteria and you know, things. It was they were Christian, God fearing men and women. It was Christians that that pushed towards you know, social like looking after people, the homeless, the sick. It was, it's Christianity that took education and took it on as a, a social duty. You know, it's, it was Christians, and it, that's what did it. An ethic of unconditional love without prejudice. And we haven't always got it right. <laughs> and maybe, that's, maybe that might be why you kind of struggle with, you know, being in church, those Christians. We haven't always got it right. But I can tell you that Jesus got it right. And we haven't always got it right, but Jesus did. And we, are, we just are constantly trying to work it out like those early Christians were. Constantly trying to work out how we can do what Rodney Stark says. Bring new norms and new kinds of social relationships that are able to cope with many urgent problems. So what would life or church life look like if instead of taking sides we walked towards the mess? If we were open-handed and open-hearted? And we got to know people's stories. And then we shared our story of how Jesus had changed our lives. What would it look like if instead of taking sides, we showed unconditional love? And what would it look like if we invited Jesus in to make seemingly unholy situations and circumstances holy? What would that look like? And to find out the answer to those questions, you need to come back next week for part four of what happened next. And I feel like I should just walk off the stage right now. Seriously, in all seriousness, Jono will be back next week. He's in the United States at the moment, but he'll be back next week to close the series out, to, talk, to ask the, answer the question, what does love require of us? What does love require of us? It's, it's going to be a, a, a message and a week not to miss. Hey, before we close tonight, I just want to invite you to say these words and it's absolutely no obligation of your own volition but to to say these words, Jesus, would you come into my life? And maybe you've been a Christian or a Jesus follower for many years but as I was talking tonight, you just, you realise there's a part of your life that you haven't asked Jesus to come into. Maybe it's a, a place that you probably wouldn't consider to be very holy and maybe it's time for you to go, Jesus, I need you to come into that part of my life. Or maybe you've never prayed a prayer like this before. Or maybe it was a really long time ago that you prayed a prayer like this. 
and you just maybe for the first time or for maybe again after a long time, you want to pray a prayer that goes, Jesus, I come into my life, like, you know, the whole lot of it. Jesus, come in. Jesus, will you come in? And will you forgive me? And will you make me holy? And so I just want to invite you as I'm praying, just to say those words, maybe speak them out loud, say them underneath your breath, but try and say them so that you do something about it. If, if you're sincere and if, if you want to um, invite Jesus to make parts of your life holy, a place where he is, a place where God is with you and you're reconciled with him. God, I just thank you for the example of the early church and their honest account of how they grappled with things and how they couldn't, in the first instance, they couldn't always reconcile their upbringing with the way they saw you live. But how as they worked it out and worked it out, God, they eventually they concluded really simple things like let's not make it difficult for people who are coming to God. And they concluded really simple things like love is a higher power. It is above everything out of all the virtues love is the most noble way and God I just pray that you would help us God to have the courage to ask the question what does love require of us and God where there are parts of our lives where you are not there God we pray this simple prayer and we say Jesus come in Jesus come into our lives Jesus come into our homes Jesus, come into those relationships. Jesus, come into those situations. God, Jesus, come in. God, to our finances, come into every part of our life. God, come into, God, our relationships with our family, our bedrooms, our lounge rooms, our kitchens, as we're driving in the car. God, Jesus, we invite you to come in. God, make every place that we occupy, every space that we occupy, make it holy. We pray, God, you would give us the courage to ask the question, what does love require of us? In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. We hope you were encouraged by what you heard and inspired to grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more details, check out suncoast.org.au. Hope you can join us again on the next podcast or here at Suncoast Church.